Now hear the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Judges chapters 4 and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 through 19. The nations you are about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. Moses continued, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you yourselves requested of the Lord your God when you were assembled at Mount Sinai. You said, Don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, or see this blazing fire, for we will die. Then the Lord said to me, What they have said is right. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I commanded him. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophet proclaims on my behalf. And now to Judges 4 and 5. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Lepideth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied. I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, a Kadesh Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Benam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Hagoam to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Debar into, Debar into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Harasheth Hagoim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. 
So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks you if there's anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come and I will show you the man you were looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. Listen, you kings, pay attention, you mighty rulers, for I will sing to the Lord. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you set out from Seir and marched across the fields of Edom, the earth trembled and the cloudy skies poured down rain. The mountains quaked in the presence of the Lord, the God of Mount Sinai, in the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, people avoided the main roads, and travelers stayed on winding pathways. There were few people left in the villages of Israel, until Deborah arose as a mother for Israel. When Israel chose new gods, war erupted at the city gates, yet not a shield or spear could be seen among 40,000 warriors in Israel. My heart is with the commanders of Israel, with those who volunteered for war. Praise the Lord. Consider this, you who ride on fine donkeys, you who sit on fancy saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road. Listen to the village musicians gathered at the watering holes. They recount the righteous victories of the Lord and the victories of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord marched down the city gates. Wake up, Deborah, wake up. Wake up, wake up and sing a song. Arise, Barak, lead your captives away, son of Abinoam. The kings of Canaan came and fought. At Tanakh near Megadus Springs, they carried off no silver treasures. The stars fought from heaven. The stars in the orbits fought against Sisera. The Kishon River swept them away. The ancient torrent, the Kishon. March on with courage, my soul. Then the horse's hooves hammered the ground. The galloping, galloping of Sisera's mighty steeds. Let the people of Merez be cursed, said the angel of the Lord. Let them be utterly cursed, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty warriors. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. Sisera asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him yogurt. Then with her left hand, she reached for a tent bag, and with a right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera with a hammer, crushing his head. With a shattering blow, she pierced his temples. He sank, he fell, he lay still at her feet, and where he sank, there he died. From the window, Sisera's mother looked out. Through the window, she watched for his return, saying, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't we hear the sound of chariot wheels? Her wise women answer, and she repeats these words to herself. They must be dividing the captured plunder with a woman or two for every man. There will be colorful robes for Sisera and colorful embroidered robes for me. Yes, the plunder will include colorful robes embroidered on both sides. 
Lord, may all your enemies die like Sisera, but may those who love you rise like the sun in all its power. Then there was peace in the land for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank for reading that scripture. Very easy scripture to read. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, church. Hope you're doing well this beautiful, actually kind of dreary morning, but hope you're still doing well in it. Um, whether be what it is, there is no better place for me, no most joyous place for me than being with you on a Sunday morning. Gather together with the church family, gather together as the body of Christ to worship together in solemn assembly is such a blessing. I love being able to do it with, with people we walk alongside with, co-minister alongside with, live life alongside with. It's such a beautiful thing that we get to practice this solemn assembly, this body gathered together. And we know each other's struggles, each other's hearts. We know what's going on in each other's lives. And in the midst of all that is happening, we choose to gather together, to set this time apart as holy together, to acknowledge our need of a great savior together, to create our own Ebenezer's together, to remember the Lord together. I just love worshiping with all of you. We're continuing in our series through the book of Judges and talking about Deborah. Now, that was a long passage of scripture, so we thank you, Erica, for doing such a wonderful job, some awesome names and places. She does such a great job. I love how she reads it so confidently, too, because I have no idea if she's correct. But it sounds good. It sounds good. Now, before we dive into this text, I want to tell you a little bit about this time I was playing with my son, Hudson. We were playing games on his iPad. Actually, he was just playing games on his iPad. I was just kind of sitting there next to him. But he was getting so frustrated. Little guy already hates to lose. I mean, really hates to lose already. He would race against uh, like adults and be like, I can't be, he would just throw a tantrum because he lost in a race. I'm like, you're five, you shouldn't win, or you're six now. But he hates losing. I don't know where he gets it, probably from his mother. But anyway, he hates to lose. But he couldn't beat the computer, and he was getting more and more frustrated. So I said, all right, buddy, buddy, calm down, calm down. Let's just let's play again. Let's do it. Let's play again. So he's playing this game, and he's, he's, as he's playing, when I saw that he was about to die or lose, I'd come step in and kind of press a button or open up a, a, a special button or project or whatever it was. I'd, I'd help you here, unleash a special move here. And eventually he won. Oh, man, he was so happy. He did a little dance. He was, you know, he's like, oh, the happy dance. He loved it. I, would, I loved it. I loved watching him dance. Now, you all know the reason Hudson won was because I was behind the scenes pressing the right buttons at the right time. Guys, when you hear the story today, when you, when you heard the, that story of Judges, when you hear the story of Barack and Deborah and Jael, what I want you to remember, and I want you to think about, not just for this story, but forever, that the real story is about the God who orchestrates the victory from behind the scenes. The God who presses the right buttons at the right times. The God who places the characters where he places them. In today's text, we're gonna see different players. We saw Deborah and Barack and Jael. We see great victory they accomplished. And it's a great victory, yet in all those, the tension of this story and all the tangled threads and all the loose ends and all the detours and all the questions and all the seemingly random events, it's all the Lord's doing. In every, every detail of the story, what we see is God is the great deliverer. He is the great king and the great hero of this story. And he is working. He is moving. Judges 4 story is one of those rich places in the Bible where a narrative is followed by a song. 
you see in chapter four, it gives us the story of the battle, but it's immediately followed by chapter five, which is the song of Deborah and Barak. This is unique in the book of Judges, but it's not unique in the Bible. It's much like in Exodus chapter 14, where the Israelites are delivered, then we see the splitting of the Red Sea, and then Exodus 15 is the song of Moses. Jonah does the same thing. Jonah chapter one, Jonah chapter two. It's much like this beautiful passage of narrative followed by expressive song. So tonight we're going to look at Judges chapter four and five, and I want to do it in two acts. Act one is Judges four, which we see this narrative. And then act two, we're going to see, look briefly at the song. And it tells us that, that more is happening beyond what the eye can see. That's more is happening, it gives us a little bit more of a glimpse into what's actually happening behind the scenes. So act one is the story. And act two, we'll look at how through this great story, we learn something about how to read even our own stories. Does that make sense? So act one and act two. So act one, the story. Geography has shifted. Chapter three, we're kind of in the southern part of Canaan. Now we're kind of moving north. And verse one is a familiar verse, should be to us at this point in Judges. And it says this, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. Familiar to us because if you've been with us in the book of Judges, this is a pattern. There's a cycle. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Something good would happen. God would send a judge, a deliverer, a savior would come. Ehud would come and with his left hand, he'd save and rescue the people. And then for while he was alive, while he was around, people were like, oh, okay, we'll follow God. But then he died. And they'd quickly forget. Generationally, they would forget. It's a repetitive book where the Israelites again and again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned the Lord. They give their hearts to other gods. They fall into slavery of sin. They cry out to the Lord and then he delivers them. It's a pattern. And honestly, this cycle is a short way, shorthand way of talking about pretty much all of human history and even our own human hearts. And so each week we're given a different episode that repeats this kind of cycle, right? Judges chapter 2 does this. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Tonight, Judges chapter 4, verse 1. It's a great failure of Israelites in the book of Judges. And it's interesting that for me, in the book of Judges, we've got 12 tribes of Israel, 12 great failures, 12 deliverers, and 12 judges. And so we see that this Israelites relapse into the same pattern of behavior. They turn away from the Lord, so the Lord, his sovereign, sovereign discipline, gives Israel over to the powerhouses of King Jabin and his evil commander, Sisera, whose 900 chariots rule the day. And his reputation was brutal. Chapter 5, verses 20 through 30, talks about the, the ex- expectation of the people who are waiting for this general to come back. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the plunder of the land. They're waiting for the enslavement of the women. The reputation of the king of that time was a reputation of plunder and enslavement of women. And in the midst of this cruel oppression, verse 3 tells us that it lasted 20 years. The Israelites again cry out. So the question is, who will deliver them this time? Who's going to come and fight for them? And God delivers them in a dramatic fashion through three key figures, Deborah the judge and prophetess of Israel, Barak the commander of Israelite army, and then Jael, this unlikely and unexpected woman. So first let's dive into who Deborah is, which by the way, Deborah is one of the coolest, most fascinating characters in all the Bible. Deborah is a very skilled woman. Verse four tells us that she is a wife. Verse five, chapter five, verse seven calls her a mother. And verse four tells us that Deborah was a prophetess, which means that she was the mouthpiece of God, that she speaks on behalf of God to the people of God. So she's a prophetess, She's a wife and she's a mother. And in fact, she's the only female judge out of all the 12 judges. 
And I think it's worth noting that Deborah is the first judge who isn't a leader of the army as well. One commentator says that Deborah is, a, is very different from all the other judges before and after her. She led from wisdom and character rather than from sheer military might. And so Deborah is not a general, she's not a warrior, but she's godly. She leads beyond the battlefield. Verse 4 tells us that she's judging, she's leading the people. Now the fact that the Bible named Deborah as a prophetess is mega huge. Mega huge is actually a very academic word there. And this is something I've actually never read about or heard about or even thought about until this week as we were studying this passage together. Pastor Danny, Pastor Eric, and I were kind of diving into this text together. And this is the first time someone was named a prophet since Moses, okay? So this is the first time anybody was named a prophet since Moses was named a prophet. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, which was read for you earlier, it says this. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb at the day of assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. This is a promise in the book of Deuteronomy given to Moses through God. And in this promised land, it says that when you reach the promised land, when you get there, I will raise up a prophet for you out of your own fellow Israelites. So who's the very first prophet named after Moses? I said it before, who? Deborah. Deborah was the first prophet named after Israel. So Deborah was the very fulfillment of this prophecy given in Deuteronomy. How cool is that? Is that just me? I'm I'm kind of a Bible nerd, so I think that's really cool. But God promised a prophet, someone who would speak to them because they no longer wanted God to speak out of the fire. They were afraid of God's voice. They promised a prophet. And the first prophet given was the judge named Deborah out of their own people in their land. See, in verse 5, in her wisdom, she's holding court. She's settling cases. In verse 6, she says to Barak, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go and take 10,000 men. And so she sees in the midst of, of leading, in the midst of judging, in the midst of being a prophetess, she now says, it is now the time. God will deliver us. He will deliver his people. So she goes to the general, to the, the one who's in charge of the army, and says, go, gather all your people. It might be a suicide mission. It might seem like a suicide mission, but it's not. I know going against 900 iron chariots seems ridiculous. It's like, hey, go get your crew and go against, you know, go get your team of friends who play basketball with you on the weekends and let's go play against the, the, you know, the Golden State Warriors. Seems like a bad idea. You won't win. But God is with you. Go, the Lord this day has given Caesarea into your hands. Has that the Lord gone ahead of you? And I love in this passage, it has given him into your hands. It's actually in past tense. The Lord has given Cesare into your hands. Does the Lord not go out before you? And so Deborah announces to Barak and all God's people the promises of God that God has secured this victory. She's a faithful, wise, godly judge and prophetess. I love that. I just love Deborah as a character, one of the incredible people in the Bible. But then there's Barak. Barak's Israelite general, their military commander, who after hearing God's charge through Deborah in verses 6 and 7, this is what he says. He said, I will lead 
he hears the command from Deborah to take up the men. After hearing that, Barak seems hesitant. I mean, who would blame him? Like I said, it's like asking you to go play against the Golden State Warriors. It's like asking you to go against tanks. Chariots were like technologically, militaristically, that much more powerful and more advanced than some people wearing spears and swords. Now, there are pessimistic and optimistic views out there of Barak's response. But some, Barak is characterized pessimistically. He's seen as a weak man, timid, full of fear and faithless. Because he responds in a way that kind of sounds like that. Well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. There's some who interpret that to be like, oh, come on, man. Step up. You don't need Deborah with you. Do what you need to do. Go fight. Some say he was punished for his lack of faith and the evidence is in Deborah's words, which some see as a rebuke. She says back to him, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver into the, Cesar into the hands of a woman. And if it's a rebuke, some say for Barak's supposed lack of faith in verse 8. But God, can I just tell you, I actually believe the opposite. Because you see, it's not Deborah the woman that Barak is crying out for. It's Deborah the prophet that, that, that Barak is asking to be there. Deborah represents the presence of God. So this seems more of a statement of faith. Barak is saying, okay, you want me to go on a suicide mission? You want me to go on a mission that seems impossible? Okay, I'll go, but only God if you go with me. Do you see the difference? I'll go, but all of you go with me. God, I have my own strength. I can't do this. Our military is not strong enough. Our basketball skills are not good enough. We cannot play against the Golden State Warriors. But, you know, if you're with us, God, okay. We'll go play. And Deborah says in verse 9, the road in which you're going will not lead you to glory, but instead the death will come at the hands of a woman. So Deborah's words were, as one commentator said, a prophetic statement of fact. It's not a rebuke. It's a statement of fact, not a verdict of a lack of faith in Barak. And so Barak, she's saying, this is not going to be a glorious battle for you. You'll not get the honor. You're not going to get all the medals placed upon your chest. But what's his response? What did he do? What would you do? That lie presented to you, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. If, somebody, if the prophet said to you, the way that you're living, this hard task you're about to undertake, this big mission that you're about to do, that's this dangerous thing that you're going to do, but it's not going to lead to your glory. What would you do? I can't help but think of the moment you're asking me to lead my men to battle, risk my life, but I won't get any glory? That's tough. I've heard some of our friends who are missionaries in kind of west part of western part of Africa were telling us how they've been there serving and uh, for about I think at the time that we spoke with them I think it was about six to seven years right and they were serving for six to seven years and they experienced some incredibly difficult times they've they've been serving faithfully loving they've had four kids that they've been raising in this beautiful wonderful village that they've been living and committing to but in that six or seven years that they've been there they haven't seen one person come to know the Lord yet this area is 99.9%, um, like, there's like no Christians in the area <laughs> at all. And 99.9% Muslim, and it's this area is just known to be hard to reach. And so they've invested six years of their lives. And so I just asked them, I was like, that's, that's tough. That's tough, isn't it? Like, I, like, I'm one of those guys that like, if I'm doing something, I want to see progress. Like, oh, I'm getting better at playing guitar. My, my shot's getting better. My golf swing's getting better. Something. I just, it makes me encouraged. And I'm like, you've been there six and a half years, and... Nothing. And he said, not nothing, but yeah, I see what you're saying, Lawrence. But the answer to me is that we're not doing this for our glory. We're not doing this for our glory. 
And I was just like, just blown away by that mentality. This is Barack's response. He, had, he, he has to take humility on this road. The road in which you're going will not lead to your glory. He has the humility to say, okay, it doesn't need to be for my glory. I'll still go to battle. I'll still fight. I'll lead my men to battle and let it be. 900 chariots, whatever. Let's go. My people, the road in which you're going will not lead to your glory. Yet, what happens with Barak? In the New Testament, if you go to the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, there's one character from this story, and it's not Deborah, the godly judge. It's not Jael, whatever it is we say about her. You can say whether she's godly or not. It's up to you guys to interpret. But somebody else. Hebrews 11 says this. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fear of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Skip to verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. The road on which you're going to will not lead to your glory, yet the world was not worthy of Barak. Uh, people, there are times that God's going to call you to do something that is, seems so difficult. And glory is not in the road for you. But can I tell you something that is those moments of faith that define who you are. I love one of the most beautiful things that we can define, what's most important as you look at the heroes of faith, heroes in the Bible, that if you look at their lives, there's so many up and down moments in their lives. There are people who do amazing things for God, and there are people who do terrible things. You're like, how could you be the same person, right? And I hope you guys relate to that, because I know I do. There are times in my life I'm like, ooh, I seem like some, such a wonderful, good person. Next time I'm like, oh, man, that's a terrible dude. But I'll tell you what defines you in relationship to God and in this world and in forever and eternity is not the moments of high and the moments of low. It's that do you choose to follow God? Do you choose by faith to follow God? That's what's huge, that's what's big here is that Barak, by faith, this is what led him to become in the hall of faith, not because he was so incredible all the time, but because he chose to trust and chose to follow God. I love what happened in the battle. The armies meet up in verse 12. Sarah's told that Barak had gone up. So he's like, dude, you going up with only those amount of men? Done, let's go. He sends his chariots to go after him. And then unthinkable happens. Sisera's army is routed, chariots and all. And what you begin to see now, if you read this story with open eyes, you're saying, yes, Jabin's general sister, the evil sister, is about to die. God's people will win because that was a promise. Sisera was about to die. But then you read verse 17, he fled away. And he runs away on foot, and he's, you know he's going to happen. What happens next? And what happens next is this, this incredible theme that's repeated over and over again. Is this the most unlikely person steps up in a weird way. Come into the story, Jael. Jael? I'll go with Jael. Jael? What would you guys prefer? Jael. And here's what we know about her. She was the wife of Heber, a Canaanite. She was not an Israel, but a Gentile. The Canaanites and the Canaanites were in league with one another. They were allies. And so because of this, Sisera is running for his life. He's looking for somewhere safe to go. So he arrives at this tent and assumes that it's safe. Verse 11 says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree. So out of nowhere, this guy isn't supposed to even be in this location. 
Right? This is almost like an overlook, overlooked verse. Like you just kind of throw away. Like it doesn't even make sense to be there. But remember, who's orchestrating everything behind the scenes? This throwaway verse equated to this guy being in the right location at the right time for Jael to, to, to commit justice for the Israelite people. You see, God begins to set stuff. He's putting into place Jael to, to, not, to not go along with her husband's allegiance to the Canaanites and to King Jabin. She's going to act very much like Rahab breaking from Jericho. She's going to act as a turncoat. She's going to be faithful to the promises and purposes of God of the Bible over the Canaanite people. So in verses 17 to 22, Jael comes to meet Sisera, and he comes up to her tent and says, come in, don't be afraid. She puts a blanket on him, feeds him, which is kind of weird, right? I'm like, I feel like hospitality is cool, but it almost seems like she's mothering him, right? And I'm like, I don't know, I just feel like, I guess milk, for me, it constitutes like, this is what you give kids, right? But I was just, I was just thinking about that. I, love it. I read this one commentary, this is what this commentary said. She said, she duped him and she doped him. Right? Come on, I mean, come on, warm milk in a blanket, I'm gonna be knocked out so fast. I'm gonna be so asleep, right? She duped him and she doped him. I love that commentator said that. He falls asleep and she goes and grabs a tent peg. And as a woman in that society, that's something they're accustomed to doing is setting up tents. She'd be actually very good at this. And she strikes down the mighty Cesar, the great enemy, the ruler of a, of a thousand chariots, 900 chariots, with one blow. At the end of it, verse 22, she says, the verse says, come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Now, you might be asking, why did she do this? Why did she betray her husband? Why did she betray her, the Canaanite people, the King James, who she has peace with? What are we supposed to do with this? Now, one commentator says, sometimes there's, these dilemmas can be solved by remembering that we must distinguish between what the Bible reports and what it recommends. Guys, I want you to understand this. This passage is not meant to be a moral commentary on the action of Jael. Hear me. I don't want you to be thinking, okay, am I supposed to be like duping and doping people? When do I take the tent peg out, right? That is not what this passage is about. Please hear me very well when I say that again. Please do not tell other people, I went to Waypoint Church and heard a sermon about doping people and driving tent pegs. That's not what we're saying. It's not a moral commentary on the action of Jael. It's, it's, it's not even a text of comment. In other words, it's, it's easy to be caught up and look at what she did and feel like, is this prescriptory for me to do ourselves? And it's not. The narrative is just trying to show you that God is still working scenes and providing deliverance even from sources that you would never expect. The purpose of the story is not to do what Jael did. The purpose of the story is for you to understand who is the God even behind Jael. Who's the guy that set up the situation and put on her the heart to choose to follow the God of the Bible versus the God of Canaan? Who's the one that placed a tent at the key location at the right time? And I love the fact that, I just need to understand this, that the Canaanite king at the time was more powerful than the Israelite army. If this guy, this powerful general, got away, he could have raised up another army. He could have rallied the truth back home. But he was not able to do that because of this one character placed in this one strategic time at this one strategic place. Do you see the author of who, the one who's orchestrating all the works in the background? God can use anyone. Let me say that again. God has used all different types of people and he can and will use anyone to accomplish his glory. 
Guys, let me just tell you this. What that really means ultimately, though, what I want you to get today is that he can and will use even you. Some of you guys might be like, well, I'm, I really don't have much to offer. I don't have any skills. I'm a pretty terrible person. Kind of lazy. I mean, if God wants somebody who's really good at video games, maybe I got you. <laughs> Who knows random information about sports trivia or movie quotes? I got you. Can I tell you guys, hear me very clearly. You have no idea what God's capable of doing through you. He used a simple practice of hammering a tent peg into the ground to deliver his people. He can use you. Act two, the song. So we looked at the great story in Act 1. Now, very briefly, let's look at chapter 2. I'm going to go kind of quick with this. This is Judges chapter 5. It tells us what's happening, kind of more what's happening than meets the eye. By the way, I love this idea of randomly breaking into song. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm a huge musical Broadway guy. I love like musicals and I love Broadway. I actually saw a show yesterday. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like Gina and I love going to like musicals. And so I love the idea that like in the middle of this like story, all of a sudden they break out into a chapter of a song. If my life could do that, I would do that. Like I would actually want like random choreographed dance scenes, like expressing like how good I feel today. Like I would do that. As a matter of fact, as a sta- staff at my waypoint, I bust out this song a lot, and I don't realize it <laughs> during the day, during the course of the day. And it's usually about something I'm thinking about, you know. So like, if I'm working on a sermon, I'm like, I can't even think of an example off the top of my head now. What's that? Yeah, if I'm working on a sermon, this victory is one of the theme words on the sermon. I walk around singing, victory in Jesus, and I have no idea I'm doing it. And so for Christmas, the staff actually spent a few months before Christmas putting together a list of songs that they hear me randomly singing. <laughs> and so they had this huge list of songs, and on Christmas Day, they put together a playlist on Spotify, right? And they say, Lawrence, here's the Lawrence Hughes soundtrack. <laughs> Some random songs. <laughs> I love it. It was a really fun gift. But I, I love it. I do love breaking out in a random song. I, just, I wish I was a better singer. You know, that's actually one thing God did. He made me not be a good singer because he knew if I was a good singer, you guys would just only hear me singing all the time. <laughs> so he knows what he's done. But we looked at this great story. Now look at Acts chapter 2. And we read this th- I want you to understand this story now as through the eyes of chapter 5 through this song. So in chapter 4, the Lord only named four times. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 14, and verse 15. But in chapter 5, you know that every detail of the story, God goes before his people. He's the hero of it all. He's the object of the song in verse five. Now you might think, how did that happen? How did they win the battle? How did they feed all those chariots? It doesn't say in the narrative. It just says they were routed. But chapter five, you learn that the Lord sent a massive rain. Chapter five, verse four says, when you, the Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched in the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, and the clouds poured down water. Chapter 5, verse 20, 21. From the heavens, I love this verse, by the way. From the heavens, the stars fought. From the courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. Do you realize what happened, right? As the wheels of these 900 chariots, as it rained and it got, got more and more muddy, they got, these wheels of these chariots got stuck, got immobilized in the mud and the mire from the rain. They were thrown into chaos, and in the midst of the chaos, the overflowing river literally helped sweep, uh, swept away the Canaanite army. And then every tree, the God's people that came in, in the midst of that chaos, conquered. Isn't that cool? 
You see on the surface, chapter five, it looks like a military victory, but Deborah says the stars fought from heaven. This is a reference to the angelic host. The stars are often references to angels, and don't you see that in every detail, God goes before his people. He moved, who's Deborah giving all the credit to? He's saying God fought. He provided the rain at the perfect time, at the right location. Why, why were they even by that river? Because Deborah told Barak to go to that river. They were like, oh my gosh, the army has only that little bit of people by the river. We need to go get them quickly. They left quickly, and then God provided the rain that got the chariot stuck in the river to overflow and take them out. Do you see what's happening here in this song? Isn't that so incredible? The stars fought from heaven. This is the same God that fights for you and fights for me. This is the same God. He comes, he keeps his promises, and we see it over and over and over again. So here's my question for you. How do you interpret your life? How do you interpret the story of your life and what you're going through right now? How do you square your experience on one hand with his promises on the other? How do you you relate to what's going on in your life with all the promises you've been given? Do you see that this has always been a part of the story? It's always been a part of God's stories. And there's questions. We all have questions. They're questioning, God, in the midst of these difficult times, are you there, God? Do you care, God? And here we are, some of us in our experiences, we might be thinking, God, do you care? How do I square my experiences right now with my suffering, with my loved ones being sick, my wife having chronic pain, or us not being able to have children, or not being married? Struggling to feel alone. And he asked the question, God, why do I quit? Why do you care? Why am I on this path? What's happening? Why this road? I don't understand. And chapter five, the song, act two, is saying, guys, you might not get what's happening. You might not get why you're going to that river. You might not get why you're going with this amount of men. But can I tell you, God is operating. God is working. God is moving. When you feel like he's not, you can look at this story and see that he keeps his promises. It looks like there's 900 chariots, unbeatable. Looks like we're going to random things. Looks like a random person planted a random tent somewhere else. But it's always been God keeping his promises, orchestrating his work in incredible ways. That's what these stories tell over and over again. And all the tension and all the tangled threads and all the loose ends and all the long nights and all the darkness, all the detours, all the questions, all the seemingly random events that are happening in your life, what do those stories tell? The more and more as it happens in my life, can I tell you, it tell, tells in my life the story of a God who loves and keeps his promises. What do your stories tell? How do you interpret the stories of your life? Do you believe the stars fought from heaven? I want to close with this. There's a question game that many parents love playing with their kids. I love doing it too. You may ask them, how much do you love me? You ever play that game with your kids? How much do you love me? I love playing this with Josiah and Hudson because Josiah's arms kind of go like this, you know? And Hudson tries to go, and they they try to reach as far as they can. That's the game you play. Like, "Uh, how much do you love me, buddy? And then Josiah and Hudson go, I love you this much, right? And they try to reach as far as I'm like, that's not enough. You need to reach further. So they go, and they stretch as far as they can. Like, that's not enough either. Keep on going. And so I just love it. They just reach as far as they can. They stretch, and they say, I love you this much. I love that, right? It's one of the cutest things in the world. And I always say this. And I always say this to them as, I, as they reach out their arms. I said, I close by saying, I love you this, this. I stretch out 
I say this much as long as I possibly can. And I say, no matter what, no matter what, I love you this much, no matter what, no matter your grades, no matter your attitude, no matter your health, no matter anything else, no matter what, I love you this much. How do you interpret your life and where you are in the story? Do you hear God singing to you in this great story that in all the tensions of your story, all the twists, all the seemingly random events, do you see him saying more is happening? And my purposes may be long, my purposes may be hidden, but just hear me when I say, I love you this much. Always. No matter what. There might be turns and you might be going through corners. You might be taking curves that you don't see the end of. You might be in a tunnel and it seems dark, but I'm taking you somewhere. I am accomplishing my purposes. Do you see that it happens over and over again? All these stories I've been giving you, you see it, right? Over and over again. It might seem dark. It might seem random. It might seem scary, but just hold on to this truth that I love you this much. No matter what. I have purpose for you. I have plans for you. And no matter what, I will always be with you. And I love how ultimately Jesus exactly showed what this much meant as he spread his arms and died upon the cross to take our place as a ransom for many so that we can know what it means to be known and loved and to have purpose. I love you this much, he said. So my people, my people, this morning, as you look at the story of Deborah and Barak and Jael, as you look at the story of Israel people, may it be our story, that in all its turns and all its twists and all its tension and, and all its happenings and all its randomly seeming events, know that there is a God pressing the buttons of the game, setting in motion the right things and saying, no matter what, I love you this much. Will you receive that love today? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for seemingly difficult stories that sometimes we don't understand, but God, we ultimately just express kind of that you are good and you're teaching us so much about ourselves in this text. So God, we just sit and bask in the fact that you love us so much, that you are faithful to your promises, God, that you're using the world and all its random events and the turns and all the curves and everything, God, but you're accomplishing something. You're the architect behind it all. You're the one orchestrating all these events together. And in the midst of even dark times and good times, we rest knowing that you're faithful and you love us so much. God, for anybody in this room, anybody in this place who doesn't know you like that, who doesn't know you in that kind of incredible love, God, who does, has never accepted that love, God, may you work and move in their hearts today. And may they choose to accept your free gift of love. May they look upon Jesus and see how much you love them. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.